All right, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter 7 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And this week, we are going to take a nosedive into verses 15 to 29. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. I am going to read, and as I lead our reading of God's Word, would you please stand? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Oh, sorry, guys. I am. Um, gosh, that's why I like physical Bibles. Just blame the iPad. Sorry. Come on. Beginning to play around. I should get someone else to read it. All right, here we go. Oh, that was embarrassing. All right, let's try again. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who, who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Is it good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand? For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10,000 rulers, 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. And this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? I turn my heart to know and to search out to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of following, the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I, I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Oh my gosh, we need to pray this morning. God, <laughs> God, we love you and we love your scripture. We love your scripture not because um, of just how incredibly um, just complex but also fascinating it is, but we love your scripture because every time we read, you promise that you will give us understanding. So this morning, give us understanding beyond my sermon. Give us understanding beyond our 
own intellectual capacities. God, we need you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Um, In life, I have many habits, okay? I am a creature of habit. If you ask my wife, um, it's simple. I know she knows where I'm going to be on a certain day, always, okay? I go to the same coffee shop at the same time, and I sit in the same seat, okay? I drive (laughs) um, to work, and I drive... um, I drive the same route. I never change. Most days, I have the same lunch. If I can afford it, I'll get a poke bowl. If I can't, I'll go home and have a tuna pasta. Um, I am a creature of habit. But I've also developed an interesting habit, and that habit has to be when I am sick, okay, I have a habit of avoiding going online Okay, and researching. And that habit has been developed because I have learned a valuable lesson. And that lesson has been this there is information overload. Okay, on any given topic, there is a myriad of opinions. Everyone has an opinion about something. Okay, and the last thing I want to do when I'm sick is to go on Google and type in my symptoms. It will make it worse, and I'm sure you agree. There is confusion about so many things. Why? Because there are so many opinions out there because of information overload. There's also, I would say, confusion about biblical topics. And one of the biblical topics that I find confusing and hard to understand because of just how many opinions are there is the topic of wisdom. Wisdom. What is wisdom? If we had the time and I said, guys, take two minutes and come up with your own definition of what wisdom is, and we went round, it would be rare for us to have the same definition of wisdom. Wisdom is complex, wisdom is vast, and there are so many opinions out there as to what wisdom is. And so, what is wisdom? Think of the wisest person you know, okay? Imagine the wisest person you know, who is it? What are they like? Are they old, are they young? Do they speak fast, do they speak slow? What's the tone of their voice like? Do they have a beard? Do they not? I can never be wise. (laughs) Because I can't grow a beard. What is wisdom? And so I went online and I looked at some of the most common definitions of wisdom. And I got this. One person said, wisdom is defined as the ability to use your knowledge and experience to make good decisions and judgments. Charles Dickens said, A loving heart is the truest wisdom. Jimi Hendrix had an opinion on wisdom. He says, Knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. Kanye West, I'm kidding. <laughs> 
He probably has an opinion of what wisdom is. One anonymous person said, wisdom, the door to wisdom is knowing yourself. So if you know yourself, that means you're wise. Okay. This morning, the preacher, who is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, will put forward his own definition of wisdom. And as we listen to him, we'll discover that there's more to wisdom than making the right decisions. There's more to wisdom than knowing yourself. There's more to wisdom than your loving heart or knowledge or anything like this. What we'll discover from the preacher's definition of what wisdom is, is that wisdom, true wisdom, is mainly about how we relate to God and others. This morning, we'll see that a wise person is, number one, fears God. Number two, understands that they're not perfect. And number three, a wise person is super grateful for Jesus. Let's look at number one. Yeah, let's look at number one. First, a wise person fears God. Look at verse 15. It says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so, as the preacher, think the preacher, the author of this book of Ecclesiastes, as he looks back on his life, he describes his life as vain. In the Hebrew language, the word vain is hevel. Everybody say hevel, which you should know this by now. Cool. Hevel Um, can be translated as meaningless or futile or fleeting. And so, according to the preacher, the life he has lived, he sees it as meaningless. Although his life has been meaningless, he has lived long enough and has had the necessary resources to experience life to the fullest. And as a result, he's seen a lot. He has seen a lot, and one of the things he has seen in life that continues to trouble him is this, and he says it, it's the suffering of good people and the prosperity of bad people, right? Let's read verse 15 again. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything, okay? I've seen everything, okay? What have you seen, okay? He says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Put simply, he has lived long enough to observe the distressing reality that bad things happen to good people and good things happen. Um, Sorry. Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. Christians are martyred for their faith, while their enemies live to terrorize the church another day. Innocent victims get cut out, cut down in the prime of their life, while their killers get convicted, but instead of dying, get life in prison. Hard-working and honest individuals live on minimum wages while crooks live on six-figure salaries. Bad things happen to good people 
and good things happen to bad people. Some of the examples I just gave are just a few of these distressing realities we have to live with. Life under the sun is unfair, and there's nothing we can do to make things right. There's nothing we can do to prevent righteous people suffering and wicked people doing well. This is just the reality we have to live with, everyone. And so, in view of this reality, this is what a preacher does. He offers an advice, okay? He, and the advice he gives is not going to take away the reality we've just been talking about, but the advice he gives will help us endure um, and live a life um, that glorifies God. And so look at verses 16 and 16. He says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Put simply, this is what he's trying to get through to us. Being overly righteous will not guarantee a prosperous life. On the other hand, he's telling us, don't choose to live an excessively wicked and foolish life. Because if you do, you'll suffer greatly and probably die before your time. And, and this is true, isn't it? So true. Um, many lives have been cut short because of reckless living. How many times do we hear of an individual, a young individual, who decided to live a reckless life and um, sadly, they destroyed their life. And so the point the preacher is trying to make is that there is no guarantee life will go well if you live a righteous life, but you're guaranteed a life of misery if you choose to live a wicked and foolish life. And so the question is, brief question is, how are you living? All right, how are you living? Are you living a life that is overly righteous or overly wicked? And so the question is, what's the solution? Is there hope? Is there a way for us to live that will help us avoid these two extremes? Is there a way to live that will help us endure the unpredictable nature of life under the sun? And the preacher graciously provides us with a legit answer. His answer is this, the fear of God. The fear of God. Look at verse 18. He says, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Put simply, this is what he's trying to say, a life under the influence of the fear of God will help you avoid being overly righteous or overly wicked. Michael Eaton says the fear of God helps us live the right life that walks the path between two extremes, shunning self-righteousness, but not allowing one's native wickedness to run its own course. Fear is an emotion native to humanity. We all have things we're afraid of. We all have things that 
terrify us. For example, and I'll start with me because I've got the microphone. For example, I have a great fear of dogs. Many of you may think dogs are cute and cuddly and lovely, but whenever I see a dog, I get terrified, all right? I cannot swim, okay? And because of this, I have a fear of water. This means the ocean, swimming pools, water slides, and even bathtubs scare me to death. True. Therefore, my greatest fear ever, and someone told me this one day, and I was like, you are horrible. My greatest fear ever is to be thrown into a swimming pool full of dogs. <laughs> All right? Oh, my goodness. I'm like sweating thinking about it. You can laugh at me, but you have things that you seriously fear. <laughs> I know. You may not fear dogs or pools, but you might fear spiders or heights. But some of you might fear being alone. Some of you might fear losing everything you've worked hard for. Some of you may fear being rejected. Whatever its form, fear is an emotion we all have to live with. And it's also something we try our best to overcome. Um, I've tried over the years to overcome my fear of dogs. We have many friends in San Diego who have dogs and they bring them around and they bring the dog to me and say, Obed, touch the dog. <laughs> and, I'm <laughs> and I'm trying, I'm getting there. want to get swimming lessons soon, all of that so that I can overcome and remove my fear and we all try our best to overcome and remove whatever fears we have. But the interesting thing is, there's a fear that we must have. There's a fear that we must embrace and hold on to. Christina Fox, who's an author, says this, This kind of fear is good. It stands up to all other fears. It brings wisdom, joy, rest, and life. It's a holy fear, and it's the fear of God. The fear of God is one of those theological truths that needs no introduction, but needs a good explanation. Because without a good explanation of what the fear of God is, there's going to be so much misunderstanding. 
The fear of God is something the Bible talks about from beginning to end. So therefore, it's absolutely essential to having an understanding of the fear of God so that we can have a right relationship with God. One of my mentors, Jeremy Treat, defines the fear of God as this. He says, it's a radical God-centeredness that shapes everything else in life. Philip Ryken says this, to fear God is to know God. It is to know that God is God and we are not. I love that. It is to hold him in awe for his majestic beauty. It is to have respect for his mighty and awesome power. I was raised mostly by my grandma, and she was deeply religious. And so I took on a lot of her views of God. And so you could say that the formative years of my life, I viewed God as this, um, this Zeus kind of character that would zap me and destroy me whenever I stepped out of line. That is kind of how I grew up viewing God. I was incredibly frightened of God. And some of you have that same experience. Whenever you think about God, there is this unhealthy fear of him. Biblically speaking, to fear God is not to be terrified of him in a way that causes you to run from him. But a true and healthy and biblical fear of God is to be so in awe of who he is and how great he is, you actually run to him and are mesmerized by him. If you worship God and truly revere him, you'll not attempt to manipulate him or influence his sovereignty by being overly righteous. On the other hand, you will not offend his holiness with a wicked lifestyle. Right? And so, the fear of God helps us and pre prevents us from being overly righteous because what happens is what we like to do is use our good behavior and our righteousness to try and manipulate God's sovereignty and how he works in our life. On the other hand, having this great, awesome, reverential view of God prevents us from living a wicked lifestyle. And so the question is, how are you living? Are you self-righteous? Are you trying to manipulate God and the outcomes of life with your good behavior? Or are you intensely living a reckless life? How are you living? I pray and I hope 
that your life becomes governed and under the influence of the fear of God. Why is that? Because the fear of God is foundational to true wisdom. You don't believe me? You think it's my opinion? It's not. Look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. One of the writers I quoted earlier said, you know, the, 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 what is it? Wisdom, the beginning of wisdom is knowing yourself. Bible will say that's baloney. The beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we've looked at how a person is wise um, when they fear God. Second, a wise person, if you're wise, you will understand that you're not perfect. If you're wise, you'll understand that you're not perfect, okay? Since the beginning of chapter 7, the preacher, he's been talking a lot about wisdom. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, and like most books of the same genre, it celebrates wisdom as a precious gift. And so from verse 19, what the preacher is going to do is begin to celebrate wisdom by highlighting some benefits of wisdom. He begins in verse 19 and he says, wisdom gives you strength. Okay, look at verse 20. Look at what he says. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In other words, wisdom will help you see that no one is righteous and everybody is a sinner. And the preacher, he doesn't stop there. He wants to really, really press in into this, um, this theme of everybody being a sinner. And so what he does, he, he, he illustrates this point using the following example. Okay, look at verse 21 and 22. Listen to it. It says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. Unless you're very, very lucky, it's highly possible that someone you know and love has said something unkind and untrue about you behind your back. Let me say that again. Unless you're very, very lucky, the truth is someone you know and love has said something unkind and untrue about you behind your back. It's getting tense in here, isn't it? <laughs> you have been a victim of gossip. And as long as you live, you will continue to be a victim of gossip. What's also true is that you, yes, I'm talking to you, are also guilty of the same thing. 
you've said something unkind and untrue about people you know and love behind their back. To our own shame, we have all said things behind people's backs that we wouldn't have the courage to tell them to their face. Sometimes, maybe we've spoken out of frustration. They've said and done something that has frustrated us, and we've just said something unkind and untrue about them to someone else. Um, other times, we have spoken unkindly about people without fully understanding the situation. Or our criticisms of others have indicated more about what is wrong with us than what is wrong with someone else. Whatever our reasons, we're all guilty of saying unkind things about others. We are all perpetrators of gossip. Blaise Pascal, I love his name. I wished my name was Blaise Pascal, <laughs> who was a French, French, mathematician. He's like a cool name. He's Francais, French. Uh, he was a French mathematician, a physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer, and wait for it, a Catholic theologian. This is what he said. If all men knew what each said of the other, there would, be not, there would not be four friends in the world. It's true, isn't it? A wise person understands that they're not perfect. A wise person will find out that someone they know and love has said something unkind or untrue about them and as verse 21 is telling you they would not take it to heart why is that because they know that they too are susceptible to the same thing we have all been victims of gossip and we have all been perpetrators of gossip we do to others what others do to us, and the cycle goes on and on and on. Before I move on, this is what I want us to do. I want us to recognize this. King's Cross Church is like four years. We're going to be four years old in March, all right? And God has been at work in our church. It's been amazing to see how he's been working and how he's building our church. And I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about people growing, people changing, all of that. Okay? I am excited about the future of King's Cross Church. But I also have fears about the future. And one of my fears is that our church will become awfully divided. We will physically look united, but we will be spiritually and emotionally divided. That is one of my greatest fears. Based on research on why churches become disunited or divided, research 
says that one of the things that divides a church and is incredibly destructive to a church or a community of any kind is gossip. It's gossip. When we talk about the, go- go- the, t- um, the topic of gossip, it's so complicated. Because I would say, if we're, you know, uh, we've got we to be kind to ourselves. Most of the time, we don't know whether what we're doing is gossip or not. I just want to pray for this person. So I want to tell you about what I've seen in their life. Hey, I have this trouble with this person. Let me share it. Well, you know, it gets kind of complex in a community. And so what I want to do right now is to help us, give us some tools on whether we, what, whether what we're saying about someone else is actually gossip or not. Okay? Because sometimes we must seek prayer and wisdom from godly friends when struggling with difficult relationships with a child or a spouse or a neighbor or co-worker or a fellow member of the church. Sometimes we, we need to do that, and so we want to be able to be honest and real. But in doing that, I think we mostly fall prey to gossip. And so Pastor Stephen Whitmer provides eight diagnostic questions to help us design, discern whether what we say to others about another person is gossip or not. Okay, he says, number one, if you're involved in conflict with another person, are you talking to others only about that person's sin and never talking about your own? That's helpful, isn't it? Right? When you have, you have relationships, are you only talking about the sins of others? Or have you built trust and have you lingered in relationship enough to also for them to be aware of your own sins? Number two, is your conversation with friends about this other person intended to prepare you for a productive conversation with the person? If not, it's probably gossip. Number three, If you're seeking counsel from others about how to deal wisely with this person, do you keep the person's identity secret except when necessary? If not, it's probably gossip. Do you enjoy sharing this information with your friends? If so, it's probably gossip. Juicy gossip. Gossip is tasty. Proverbs 18.8 says, Seeking counsel in a broken, difficult situation is good, but it is painful, not enjoyable. Five, what's the tone of your voice and the tenor of your heart? Are you meek, humble, and brokenhearted when you share this other person's sin, or do you feel angry and righteous by comparison? Number six, are you talking to God about this person as much as you're talking to your friends about them? Number seven, are you limiting the number of friends you speak to? If not, it's probably gossip. King's Cross Church, let me exhort us 
to resist their ongoing temptation to gossip, to say untrue, unkind, and negative things about people behind their backs. I know it's happening in our church family because I'm guilty of it as well. And so pray that we resist the appeal of gossip in our church, even between husband and wife. Now my kids are older, <laughs> it helps. Wisdom is reminding us that we all fail to meet God's standard of perfect speech. But if we are wise, we will make sure that our own words pass a few simple tests before we dare to speak. And so these basic questions are like, would I say this if that person could hear me say it? Is this the way I should say it? Am I saying this for the glory of God and for the love of my brother or sister, or am I only saying it to vent my own frustration. Oh, I just need to process it with someone. Yeah, right. May God's saving and sanctifying grace give you strength to know what to hear, what not to hear, and how to speak and how not to speak. God, help us. So, the wise person fears God. The wise person understands that they're not perfect. Lastly, the wise person is super grateful for Jesus. Look at verse 23 and 24. It says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So what's happening is the preacher has been on this mission to try and attain and hold on to wisdom. But he says it's far off. I cannot attain it. It's impossible. He's failed to understand and grab hold of wisdom. And this, you can tell, has been frustrating to him. He couldn't find the meaning of life. But the interesting thing is, as he seeks wisdom, and he fails to grasp and hold on to wisdom, he stumbles onto something else that he describes as something that is more bitter than death. Look at verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. This is what is bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Very interesting. The other thing he discovered during his failed mission to find wisdom was that there is no wise or righteous person he says, everyone is corrupt. Look at verse 27 and 28 again. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find a scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Okay? 
my soul has sought repeatedly. He's talking about wisdom. He's not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. All right, before we accuse this guy for being sexist or promoting negativity towards women, we need to interpret this verse in its context. And when we do, what we'll notice is that his observations are based on personal experience, not a universal truth. Okay? Some people think um, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And if it is Solomon, Solomon had a lot of women in his life. Okay? And because of the abundance of women in his life, he just had this negativity towards women. Because obviously, one man, thousand women, not going to work. All right? And so, it's personal experience, not a universal truth. We need to also recognize that it's absolutely out of touch with reality to believe that no wise, godly, and, and righteous woman exists. If, that what he, if this is what he said, it's untrue. All right? Wise, godly, and righteous women do exist. Martin Luther was thinking of these women when he said, There is nothing on earth so lav- lovely as a woman's heart with God's grace to guide its love. Okay? And so he's speaking. He's saying there's no godly what? No, that is not right. He is out of touch with reality. And lastly, we know the preacher is wrong if he views men more positively than women because of what he says next. Look at verse 29. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All right, listen. Theologians have long recognized verse 29 as an important verse for Christian doctrine. All right? A verse that teaches us about creation and the fall. The point he's trying to make is that both men and women are both corrupt. It's a broad indictment against humanity. Okay? Charles Bridges said, uh, said this, all right? Um, uh, said this, that this is, um, about this verse, he said, this is a humbling testimony to the universal and total corruption of the whole race of man. Okay? Sin is the great equalizer. Every man, every woman, and every child is a sinner. Many people will do this. They will try and blame God for everything that is wrong with the world, but he's not the one to blame because according to this verse and so many others in Scripture, God made man upright. In other words, God created human beings to be virtuous. That's why after God created all things, it says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? It was very good. This is the biblical doctrine of original righteousness. 
This means that in his created condition, man was perfectly righteous. But when Adam chose to eat the forbidden fruit, he doomed all of his children to depravity. The Bible describes this as original sin. Because of his actions, Adam became not just the author of his own ruin, but the ruin of us all. We are born into this world with sinful natures that can be traced back to the sin of Adam. We come from Adam in this world as newborn sinners, and later when we know better, we act out our sin. Okay, if you've ever had kids, okay, I've had three kids, and what blows my mind is I can't, I, I never sat any of my kids down and taught them how to lie. Okay, I never sat them down and taught them how to manipulate and argue and fight with each other. I never taught them that. I never said, hey, this is what you do, this is how you lie. Here's the truth, but say something different. I never did that. The reason is this. We, by nature, have the sin of Adam from the very moment that we are conceived in our mother's womb. This is why John Calvin compared Adam to a root that goes rotten and then ruins the whole tree. C.S. Lewis says this. To come from the Lord Adam... And Lady Eve is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor. This is as far as Ecclesiastes 7 can take us. in reminding us of how sinful we are. We are sinful to the core. But if we stop with the doctrine of sin, we stop short of salvation. The Bible doesn't end with creation and the fall, but the Bible keeps going until it reaches Jesus Christ. The first Adam is not the only Adam. 1 Corinthians celebrates the arrival of the second and last Adam who did not fail to remain righteous but lived a perfect life and died and resurrected for our salvation. Jesus remained upright and never fell into sin and by virtue of his perfect life and atoning death, he offers to us forgiveness of sins and then he offers to us eternal life. If if you are here and you are a Christian, I pray and hope every time you think about Jesus and what he's done for you, your heart is stirred. Every week on Sunday, we are going to get to Jesus. We are going to remind ourselves of why Jesus today, why Jesus is the wisest of all, why Jesus is the most upright, and even in light of all of that, he dies and resurrects so that we can have forgiveness of his eternal life, but in the present, have a legit, real, awesome relationship with the awesome and reverential God. So I pray that as a church, we would be stirred 
and moved and staggered by God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. This week, let's cry out to God. If you are here and you're like, man, like, that's true. And that's me. Like, that's true. Like, man, I, I know so much about who God is, but it doesn't move me as much as, you know, a, a soccer game moves me. And it doesn't move my emotions as much as anything. Like, pray that you are staggered both intellectually and emotionally by who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. If you are wise, you will be super grateful for Jesus Christ. Philip Ryken says this in closing. Even if we do not have the wisdom to solve all the deep mysteries of life or to figure out everything there is to know about our place in the universe, we should at least be wise enough to see the deadly sin in our own hearts and to ask Jesus to be our Savior. Jesus is our King. He is our Savior. And may we enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Thank you, God. God, we want to be men and women who are wise. May we be wise not based on what culture tells us wisdom is, but help us to be wise. May our wisdom be driven and motivated by how you define wisdom. And this morning we saw from Ecclesiastes that if we are wise, we will fear you in a healthy way. If we're wise, we'll um, understand that we're not perfect. And lastly, if we are wise, we will be continually grateful for Jesus. God, I pray, may we understand and experience the joy of the salvation you've provided for us in Jesus and in his name we pray. Amen.